Welcome to Kelly Dry's Full Spectrum Podcast, bringing together thought leaders in the technology, media, and telecommunications industries to discuss legal issues that are expected to impact today's organizations and tomorrow's marketplace. Kelly Dry Full Spectrum is produced twice monthly, and show notes are available at www.kellydryfullspectrum.com. For more in-depth commentary, head to our blog, comlawmonitor.com. All links are in the show notes. This podcast is produced by the Kelly Dry Communications Practice Group. Hello, and welcome to Kelly Dry and Warren's latest podcast in our series on enforcement. I'm Steve Augustino from the Communications Practice Group at Kelly Dry, and with me... And I'm Brad Currier, an associate in the Communications Practice Group at Kelly Dry. As usual. Brad and I, uh, as you may know if you've been following this... Um, have been doing enforcement podcasts for about 18 months now, um, different, uh, different times, different series. The purpose of these podcasts really is to dig into the FCC's enforcement activities. We watch um, the releases that are coming out of the Enforcement Bureau. We watch for trends. We watch for interesting things. And our goal here is to highlight the things that happen that we think are interesting or that you ought to know over the last couple of months or the last uh, month or so here. Um, as we're recording this, this is September of 2018. Uh, we are here to talk primarily about activities that occurred in August and early September of 2018, um, taking a look at you know what's been going on with the Enforcement Bureau in that time frame. So Brad, why don't you, why don't you start us off a little bit, give us some of the big picture here. Yeah, sure. So, you know, as summer turns to fall, the DFCC stayed relatively quiet on the enforcement front. But that doesn't mean we still don't have things to talk about because there's definitely a few big ticket items that came out in the area of telecommunications enforcement, including a big DOJ prosecution concerning E-rate fraud that involved millions of dollars and a notable settlement involving a transfer of control violations with the FCC that contains some unusual provisions that we want to talk about, maybe some practice points for those in the industry. Now, both actions involve entities that typically don't have to pay much attention to telecommunications regulations, specifically schools and then later on hotels and hospitality management. But we want to highlight the potential legal dangers that can sometimes result from that lack of attention to telecom regulation. It can sneak up on you and can come with some serious consequences, as we're about to discuss. Right. Yeah. We don't normally have a, a single theme for these enforcement podcasts, but I think this one, yeah, there is kind of a, a unifying theme here of you actually may be subject to FCC regulation even if you don't think that you are. Right. right. These are the knowable you know, knowable unknowns here that they need to take a look at. Exactly. Before okay. Yep. So, so let's start. Let's start with the, uh, the E-rate enforcement action. Now, just as brief background, the FCC oversees a universal service fund. It's a universal service program. There are four different programs within this. Overall, the Universal Service Fund is like $8.5 billion a year of money outgoing. Um, $3 billion a year of that is funding for schools library, and libraries to obtain telecommunication services and broadband services. So that's what's referred to as the E-rate or educational rate program. It is a big program, has been in effect since 1997, and is generally viewed as a success in bringing connectivity and modern communications capabilities to our schools, connecting our schools. So that's kind of the background on it. But because it's so big 
it attracts a lot of attention, right? Sure. And because it's so big, it comes with very strict regulatory requirements that come with the receipt of the federal funds. If there's one thing that we've talked about in this podcast before is that anytime you're receiving money from the federal government, it always comes with very potentially complex strings that need to be you know, understood and complied with in order to make sure that you don't result in the situation we're just about to talk about. So the Department of Justice announced indictments recently in late August against the head of a religious school, the school's telecommunications equipment and service vendors, and the school's consultants that they were using for applying for E-rate funds. Now, like we just talked about, in E-rate, the kind of obligations that you're required to, the institutions, these schools and libraries that request these funds, they need to certify to the costs of the equipment and services requested. They need to conduct an open bidding process for vendors, and they need to use consultants that are independent of the vendors. The whole idea is a fair and open bidding process for these telecommunications services and equipment. The, the, The idea there is that the government, if they're Providing this funding, and it's very, very significant funding, the discount rate, so the part the government picks up is usually 80 or 90 percent. Yeah, it can be up to 90 percent. Right. Um, And so the idea was that the government should be efficient in that, and we're only going to pay as a a government, as a nation here, right, we're only going to pay the fair cost of that. So the competitive bidding requirements and things like that are out there to make sure that this is the best price possible for that particular service in that particular market. Yeah, fair return on the government dollar. So let's talk about some of the allegations here. So I just talked about some of the obligations that that come with receiving these funds. The allegations basically include that all of those were basically violated. So we have allegations that the school was seeking funds for equipment and services that were not provided. Uh, that they were seeking funds for equipment and services serving no real educational purpose. Here we have an interesting thing here where the school actually didn't allow students to use the internet as part of its religious mission, but in fact had requested you know hundreds of thousands of dollars of equipment and services related to providing you know high speed broadband access. Yeah. The the other detail I saw that was kind of interesting there is that the the preschool program was getting money for distance learning uh, right. applications yeah. and video conferencing. You know, it's unlikely the little toddlers were actually participating in that. Sure. So that you know, we're talking about the equipment services you know that uh, they requested, and then they, there's also allegations that they were overbilling for the equipment services that were actually provided. Now, there's also allegations that the consultants received kickbacks from the vendors to steer E-rate projects to the vendors. And then there's also allegations that the school received improper benefits in exchange for using the consultants and the vendors, things like free cell phones and services. Now, remember, E-Rate is a discount program. It is not providing free services to schools and libraries. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Now, but before you go into the, the more specific violations here, let's, let's dig into what is alleged to have happened here because the, the school itself is not a defendant. A school official That's is right. a defendant plus several consultants plus several entity people who operated as a service provider. Yeah, there's two different vendors providing services and equipment. So they were all, at least according to the allegations and the indictment, operating in concert here to uh, overbill the fund. Yeah, that's correct. Okay. Yeah. So let's talk about what they were actually charged with. So the, the charges here are what's known as wire fraud. So wire fraud in federal statute 
basically covers anything where there's a, intending to devise any scheme to defraud. That's the legal language. But basically, it applies to almost any fraud against you know uh, the federal government involving almost any means of communication. Now, there's a separate statute for mail fraud, but wire fraud, you know, also would basically cover any sort of electronic submission to USAC, the FCC, where there's these illegitimate, you know, at least alleged requests for E-rate support. Now, th these kind of charges, they come with potentially decades of jail time and significant monetary penalties. Let me stop you there. So, so they're charged, each of the defendants is charged with wire fraud violations and multiple violations for that. Yeah, right? and conspiracy to commit the wire fraud, the wire fraud itself. Okay. But let's talk about what's not in this indictment and not in this particular enforcement action. Yeah. So what's interesting about this is that there doesn't include any charges related to something that's known as the False Claims Act. Now, the False Claims Act generally applies to fraud involving government programs. It's actually known as the Lincoln Law. And that's a little bit of history that goes back to the Civil War. Basically, there's a law that was originally implemented to prevent people from selling bad horses and defective guns to the Union Army. So that's why it's called the Lincoln Law. Now, it covers when you knowingly submit a false claim to commit government funds, to obtain government funds. Now, knowingly, you know, that's kind of a loaded word. So it, it certainly covers actual knowledge that what you're doing is submitting a false claim to the government. But it also covers deliberate ignorance and reckless disregard as to whether the claim that you're making with the federal government is false. Now, one reason that we may not have a False Claim Act uh, charge here is that there's no apparent whistleblower, basically someone inside the school system or someone who basically came to the authorities uh, with the information related to this scheme. The reason why that comes into play is that the False Claims Act actually rewards whistleblowers in many cases, and they can receive part of the amount recovered in a False Claims Act lawsuit as an award under certain, circumstance, certain circumstances. And that percentage of how much it alters depends on the facts of the cases and when the whistleblower comes into play. Right. And, and whether the DOJ uh, picks up that case and, and those sorts of things. But, but yeah, I mean, there have been a lot of other uh, pretty significant cases involving E-rate that do involve the False Claims Act. There was a, a case down in Texas dealing with um, providing uh, computer equipment and, and website services, I believe, with that. Um, and then there have been a series of cases that have been brought in Wisconsin and um, here in D.C. involving telephone companies allegedly overbilling for the wireless services back when that was actually supported by the E-rate fund. So normally we see these things come up as, e as False Claims Act cases. This hasn't come up that way, um, at least through DOJ. But at the same time, we know that you know the FCC's Office of Inspector General and others were involved in the investigation here, right? Yeah, but, no. In fact, they're part of the press release that comes out and says that they worked with the FCC's uh, Office of Inspector General on the case. But you know, as we talked about, there's a couple things that there are sort of there are gaps here in the story, and one of the big things is there doesn't appear to have been nor a discussion of repayment to the E-rate fund. And so that's something that we've usually seen in these other cases as sort of a initial step, step zero, before you even get to potential prosecution fines on top of it and penalties. Right. And, and, that, and that, you know, maybe some of that it comes from the fact that the actor here we're talking about is the U.S. Department of Justice, not the FCC taking enforcement action or not USAC uh, withholding funds in its ordinary review process. Yeah. So I guess the, the real question there is, is it coming? 
Like, is is the the order just out of order here, um, or is this? Are they getting a pass here? That's we don't know that one way or the other. Yeah, there's point. no indication that FCC Enforcement Bureau or OIG or really the FCC is going or planning any further action on this. I mean, they're basically mentioned in the press release and then it moves on with the prosecution. So. I think it's at least fair to say that DOJ is at least in the driver's seat. They're the primary mover. Whether other things happen you know, remains to be seen. One thing we've talked about in this podcast before is at least as far as the FCC Office of Inspector General is concerned, there is no uh, time limit on when they can request uh, refunds basically back to the Universal Service Fund for fraud. So they may not see themselves as time limited on trying to go back and collect these funds, if that's even possible. Right. right. Yeah. And, and, and also, I mean... I don't want to get too inside baseball, right? But it's the Office of Inspector General that's been assisting here, not the Enforcement Bureau itself. And we we have seen, in fact, we've talked about enforcement actions taken by the Enforcement Bureau and the FCC involving other E-rate fraud instances. Right? Sure. And there they'll be going after the violations of the rules related to the E-rate program. You know, did you file these things? Did you correctly you know, make these certifications? They're going after the actual rule violations, whereas OIG is looking at the fraud and the recollection of funds. Yeah. yeah but, but we talked, in, it was a while ago now, right? And this has a really long tail in terms of the investigation. But New York City had um, the New York City school system had serious E-rate issues that came up a number of years ago, um, involving there a contractor who was, um, I guess, it was a consultant who was also a contractor who was self-dealing in a way that inflated the cost to the fund. That was the core allegation there. Yeah, that's right. We have a, a relationship between the vendor consultant in which there's basically self-dealing yeah. and then the inflation of what was actually being requested and then, you know, what was actually provided. Right, right. And, and that that ended up resulting, I mean, that was $3 million, uh, I think, in a settlement payment from the school system alone. And then the actual vendor also had to, uh, also engage in a settlement with the FCC that was something like $17 million. Right, right. And that vendor's payment included uh, both a fine and refund of right. monies paid yeah. back to the, mm-hmm. you know, to the fund on that. So, so in other cases, we've seen that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, we haven't seen that here, or at least we haven't seen it yet. Right. right. And let's also talk about the yet there, which is, you know, obviously the vendor and the consultants, it's highly unlikely that they only worked with just one school. And so when we've seen things like this before, these investigations have a tendency to expand to sort of encompass all of the business dealings that involve these E-rate vendors and E-rate consultants. And so there very may well be still stuff to come that will uh, out of this. Right, right. Yeah, and you know, look, if, if you're an applicant, a school system who was dealing with these particular consultants and these particular vendors, and I realize we haven't named them specifically in this podcast, but you can do a search and you can find those individuals um, uh, and you can see it on our blog as right, well. We absolutely. did cover it there. Yeah. Um, but if you're involved with any of those, um, you probably ought to take a close look at your own dealings with those entities and figure out whether or not there is some exposure there and ultimately figure out whether you want to disclose something to the FCC and to USAC related to it. Right. Absolutely. 
So we can now move on to, I guess, our other, what we'll call our big ticket item, for the, at least for the purpose of this podcast, and involves transfers of control. Now, this actually isn't a topic that we talk a lot about on the podcast. It does come up periodically with the FCC. It is one of those bread and butter sort of enforcement actions that's not really plowing any new ground here, but it's something that absolutely the breadth of what this can cover is what makes it important, at least for the terms of what we're talking about today. Right. right. Well, I'll actually, and, and also, right, we've commented on this. This Enforcement Bureau puts more focus on these this type of situation than the other situations and certainly is not engaging in the enforcement of a broad principle uh, lacking rules that uh, had characterized previous Enforcement Bureaus. So. Sure. So let's dig in. So also in late August, the FCC settled an investigation of the hotel chain Marriott regarding unauthorized transfers of control of wireless radio licenses in connection with Marriott's acquisition of another hotel chain known as Starwood Res- uh, Hotels. Now, the Communications Act and the FCC rules generally require prior FCC consent for the transfer of control or assignment of their licenses and authorizations. Basically, if you've got an FCC authorization, you might need FCC prior approval before you transfer that. Now, Marriott came to the FCC and voluntarily disclosed that about 65, I think, licenses and authorizations had been transferred from Starwood Hotels to Marriott during the acquisition without that prior FCC approval. Now, F- now, Marriott admitted in the consent decree that those transfers violated the FCC rules and agreed to pay a civil penalty a, a little over, I think, a half million dollars. Yeah, and, and that you know that part of it right there is not all that uncommon. That you'll come forward afterwards and self-disclose violations, and um, it's unfortunately easy to miss these types of things in in the transaction if you don't bring the right counsel in, if you don't bring the right. Uh, put the right focus on the due diligence, you can miss these sorts of things, right? This was a big acquisition of hotel companies, right? And right. Yeah, the FCC yeah. license was a flea on the tail of yeah. the dog, really. Well, and think about the industry that we're talking about. I mean, the, the complexities of hospitality administration and the laws related to that and corporate acquisitions and employment and labor matters, those obviously were probably forefront in their mind where this might have just, you know, taken a back seat and may have been forgotten. Right, right. So, okay, so yeah. they paid $500,000. So what's what? What's curious, to, what, interesting to us about this particular right. one? Right, so, you know, from first glance, we see mostly boilerplate compliance conditions, the usual appointment of a compliance officer, the usual development of a compliance plan, training program, submission of periodic reports to the FCC. But then we noticed, you know, in a footnote, basically, it also, there was a significant departure from what we'll call FCC settlement boilerplate. And basically, in this footnote, the FCC agreed that any further, and I'm going to put up air quotes for everyone listening to us, they can't see it, but there you go, quote unquote, isolated instances of transfer of control violations that occurred prior to the settlement date would not be considered a separate violation of the consent decree. Now, they still said Marriott had to disclose these violations as they found out about them. But basically what this says was, you've told us about 65 of these violations, and we're settling those here. But if you also find out that there were more that basically should have been disclosed this time, that's actually not going to count as a violation of the consent decree. And why that's important is that usually parties must disclose all the relevant pre-existing violations as a prerequisite before the FCC will agree to enter into a settlement. And you basically almost certify that you've disclosed everything related to that as one of the conditions of settling it. Right. It, you know, I mean, it, that's a natural thing, right? The 
commission needs to know what it's settling. You need to know, you know, when you go through these enforcement actions like this, a lot of the discussion between the lawyers and the government is how many violations are there? What's the, you know, the the amount per violation that we're going to settle on? And that's how you get these numbers. I mean, we're not picking these numbers out of air, right? It's It's that. So, you know, this is kind of interesting here to me because it suggests that there are potentially other violations out there that are still being settled in effect by this. Violations that might have occurred during the transaction that just haven't been discovered. Um, ones that might have occurred after the transaction in in this case or potentially a little more broadly than that, right? Yeah, that's key. I mean, it didn't say that isolated instances related to this transaction with Starwood. It just said isolated transfer of control violations. Right, yeah. right. And even, you know, kind of what... what, what makes it interesting to me, uh, among other things, is that it potentially covers actions that occurred during the investigation, right? Absolutely. Again, that, you know, Marriott wasn't aware of, right? Um, Because if they were aware of, they would have disclosed them to it. I I know that, you know, with confidence, I believe that to be the case here, right? So we're talking about things that just haven't been discovered, but it says all the way up until the settlement date. So that covers a really broad period. Right. And it's unclear how the FCC is even going to determine whether the new violations are, again, quote unquote, isolated. I mean, isolated is doing a lot of work there in the footnote. So while this may be a one-off departure from boilerplate that we may not see that came out of those conversations with counsel that, Steve, you were just talking about, I mean, this at least opens up the door for future negotiations to say, well, especially in situations like these where these are almost administrative type violations, um, where it may not be immediately obvious how big of an issue it is before you come to the table with the FCC, to at least discuss this type of provision in a settlement. We'll see if the FCC agrees to it later, right? That's that's to be seen. But I guess the underlying point is that the action serves as a reminder that the FCC's jurisdiction often stretches beyond communications providers. And so anytime a transaction involves a change in the controlling ownership interest of an FCC licensee or someone who holds authorizations, a substantial transfer of control occurs that requires prior FCC approval. I know, Steve, you, you want to talk about maybe like an, a quick example of that. Yeah, I'll, I'll just give you an example of this. I mean, I was involved a few years ago now in a transaction between two healthcare companies. Um, so healthcare company A was was buying healthcare company B. They both offered a claims processing system, essentially. And as it turned out, the seller was um, packaging um, connectivity, broadband communications, in a way that arguably was resale, that there arguably therefore meant that they had universal service payment obligations that hadn't been fulfilled. So here we are, you have two healthcare companies all of a sudden, and they've got a USF issue. And, you know, that, that can come up. Yeah, and two things right there. I mean, that's not, you know, necessarily a transfer of control. That's even other FCC regulations that you have to be, at least if you're not aware of it, at least to know that you should be aware of it and to ask the question ahead of time. Because that's the thing. Any company considering a transaction, and it does not have to be companies that are involved in the provision of telecommunications necessarily, need to consult knowledgeable counsel beforehand to understand the scope of some of these potential regulatory obligations. Right, right. Yeah, and just a couple of areas where it comes up, right? If the companies use radio communications in their business or use point-to-point communications in their business, um, that can 
can trigger these. If they manufacture equipment, which is a, a, a radiator um, of signals, that can trigger these things. If they receive money from the government, like the schools uh, earlier on, those can trigger these sorts of situations. Or like in that case I was talking about where um, they're using telecommunications or broadband services as a component of your service, you may be reselling it and may be involved in those things. So those are just kind of some of the big picture areas where these issues can crop up when you don't expect them to be. Yeah. So we just did a quick recap of what's been going on over the last month and a half. So now let's look ahead. So uh, next week, the draft agenda for the FCC's meeting, which is going to happen on September 26th, contains not one, but two enforcement actions. I mean, we've talked about this before where it's become more and more common, although it's been quiet last couple of meetings, to have enforcement actions as part of the FCC's big monthly meeting. Now, unlike other meeting items involving rulemakings, we've discussed this before, the FCC doesn't announce the subject of the enforcement action in advance. And here there's just some interesting things that I think we need to talk about. Yeah, well, also, I mean, it's just kind of funny, right? This is, I think, the second time now that we've had major enforcement items teed up for a meeting, which comes shortly after we record this. So you might, by by the time the, the listeners here are listening to this podcast, the meeting may already have occurred and mm-hmm. you may know what it is. We don't at this point, right? Right. Now, but looking at the grouping of where they are in the agenda, you know, two things stick out. First of all, we have two of them. Now, that seems to suggest that the items may be related to the same target or maybe they deal with the same subject matter. Now, prior FCC meeting enforcement actions have involved major key focus areas for FCC Chairman Pai, specifically robocalling and caller ID spoofing. I raise this because also news that's come out recently is that the um, basically consumer uh, protection group within the FCC recently announced uh, that they're going to be working with the AARP. Uh, to combat robocalling scams basically targeting retired persons using spoofed caller ID information. So it's something that they're trumpeting right now as they're sliding into the meeting next week, and it's something that we've seen before. Right. Um, yeah. I mean, earlier this year, right, there have been two enforcement actions totaling close to $200 million um, for alleged robocallers, and it was really on the caller ID spoofing elements of that, not the TCPA right. violations. Including the largest fine yes. you know, the FCC <laughs> has proposed. So, uh, but, but one that we don't, we're not so sure they'll actually collect. Sure. Right? For that, you got to go to our podcast archives to hear our thoughts on that one. I mean, again, we just note that the FCC meeting items, they're, they're, they're there for a reason. So they normally involve either headline-making fines uh, you know, even after criticism of the prior FCC about, you know, uh, potentially uncollectible penalties. Um, and it's something that clearly is part of an agenda that's being made as part of the meeting. Right. Yeah. That's what I wanted to point out. These are not at the end of the meeting here. These are placed right in the middle of the meeting. They're like agenda items four and five, right after three major items that have been big ticket on Chairman Pai's priority list. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the they Connect America Fund and... and uh, 911 location 911 things like that. And yeah. um, infrastructure, that's the other one, right? And so these come here. So that, to me, suggests the that these also relate to an area that has been a large um, focus of Chairman Pai. Um, it could easily be robocalling just because of that. But 
but we don't know at this point. No, and I think we've done enough prognostication for one day. <laughs> That's right. We'll, we'll find out next month whether we were right. <laughs> All right. So, um, so that's our, our, our update for September of 2018. Uh, we thank you for listening to us. We hope that you will continue to follow us. We will be back and we will talk uh, probably next month about what actually did happen at the September 26th open meeting. Thank you. The views and ideas expressed on this program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views or ideas held by Kelly Dry and Warren LLP, its staff or management.